This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it feels like more and more people are watching Disney programming. Investors certainly very bullish on that stock, especially ahead of the Disney Plus launch next week. We've got the perfect team to talk to us about all things mouse. Chris Palmieri is Los Angeles Bureau Chief for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from that bureau. And Gita Ranganathan, she is technology and media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us on the phone from BI headquarters, had a phenomenal presentation yesterday uh, as part of the year ahead that really sort of set the stage for so many conversations that we had about this streaming service. So Chris, I wanna start with you. Just remind us what we heard from Disney yesterday because the enthusiasm seemed uh, pretty intense. Right, I mean, it's just amazing to watch because the earnings were down about 27% per share. Their core you know, business of, of, of TV networks, profits was down, ESPN was down, subscribers were down 4%. Uh, yet the stock rallies, I mean, it was, it was, it was big earnings uh, jump in the film business and at the theme parks. But moreover, there's just this, uh, it's moved from being a, a, a business, you know, trading really on earnings and one based on the hope of all these new streaming services. And they had a lot of news yesterday about that, new partners like Amazon and Samsung and LG, earlier than expected launch uh, for the Disney Plus streaming service in Europe. And so there's just uh, a lot of momentum building for Tuesday's announcement. Gita, come on in too. Uh, you dug into the results in the quarter. Um, how did you see it? What stood out for you? Um, yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, it was, I think it was a pretty um, solid beat. And as Chris mentioned, um, you know, film really outperformed. And I think we're going to continue to see some of that momentum in this quarter as well with, you know, f- the launch of Frozen 2 and uh, the Star Wars movie. Uh, Parks continues to do really well. Uh, one notable thing that they mentioned with the park segment was, was merchandise was up so strong. Uh, but really, I think earnings is going to continue to be the sideshow for the next few quarters. I think similar to a few years ago when the market was kind of hyper-focused on ESP and sub-losses, I think over the next few quarters, it's going to be the Disney Plus sub-gains. Interesting. And so what is it, Chris, about Disney Plus that people are so excited about? Is it the breadth? Is it the cost? Is it what's in the pipeline? And and when I say breadth, I mean the library uh, of assets that they have. What's underneath uh, the optimism here? All of the above. They're really, this is an example of them taking absolutely no chances. They're throwing all of their best movies and TV shows, all of their best brands, all of their new ideas. Uh, they've got a show premiering on Tuesday called The Mandalorian. It's the first live-action Star Wars TV series. It looks terrific. John Favreau directed and wrote it. Uh, so so they're, they're putting all of their best brands at an incredibly low price, $7 a month or, in some cases, free for Verizon customers. And that's a huge uh, psychological shift for a company like Disney, you know, where it's 150 bucks just to walk into the theme park for a day. So let me ask you guys, and let me start with you, um, Gita, first. I mean, stock's up about 3.2%. At its highs, it was up 5.5% uh, in the Friday trade. It is up now 25% this year. Um, the gains that we've seen are justified, Gita, in terms of the results we've gotten? 
Absolutely. I absolutely think so. And I think there's even more momentum for the stock. I mean, yesterday's results uh, and their commentary on streaming was really encouraging. Uh, I think as Chris mentioned, uh, you know, there were a lot of good positive surprises. There was an acceleration that they kind of pointed to with the ESPN Plus service. They seem to have some strategic clarity now on Hulu. Uh, and then um, those international launches kind of coming in quicker than we thought they would. And so, Chris, what trips them up? What, what are they most worried about? What's Bob Iger's? What's on Bob Iger's mind at this point? So funny. I went to this investor day they did in April, where they outlined, uh, you know, basically how much their their big projections, how many subscribers going to have, but also how much they were spending and how they're not going to make a penny on any of these streaming services for another four or five years. And I walked out of there thinking this is going to be a disaster. The stock's dead money for five years, and of course it soars the greatest uh, increase in value ever. And that's why I'm a poor reporter and not a money manager. <laughs> but uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of disappointments between now and 2024, which is when they're projecting to make uh, break even for Disney Plus. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, Gita. What what's your thoughts on that? Um, so they've, you know. It's, it's, it's really hard to say, but I, I think as of right now, uh, from from a subscriber standpoint, I think they absolutely hit the ground running. They just mm -hmm. have so many different levers to pull. The content cost angle is going to be a little bit harder. That said, they do have an amazing library. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a wait and watch. And so, Gita, if you're sitting at some of the other big streaming competitors, what is your strategy vis-a-vis -vis Disney? You know, we heard Jonathan Nelson right after your uh, aforementioned excellent presentation essentially say, look, Netflix and Disney have, have largely won this streaming war already. Uh, a, do you agree with that? And B, where does that leave the rest of them? Actually, I do agree with that. Um, so Netflix really has the first mover advantage. They have the, the breadth, the depth of content. They have the global appeal. Disney has the same thing. I mean, their brands kind of resonate all across the world. So, so which means that it's, it's going to be a very, very tough slog for all the other services. Um, you know, I think a lot of them basically uh, fall by the wayside. All right. Well, it's going to be really interesting to watch. We know both of you guys will be all over it. Uh, Gita Raganathan, thank you so much. Uh, Technology and Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Chris Palmieri, L.A. Bureau Chief for Bloomberg all over Disney. little grease for you on this Friday, taking you back. Uh, flashback Friday, if you will. Um, speaking of flashbacks, HP, man, it has certainly changed over the last few years. Of course, broken up. That was uh, just a few years ago. What's interesting this week is Xerox, uh, it's official, making a takeover bid for HP. And the board of HP is apparently still deliberating over a 33 billion dollar takeover proposal from Xerox, according to those in the know. Crawford Del Pretz with us, president of IDC Research. Uh, and uh, he joins us on the phone from Framingham, Massachusetts. Hey, Crawford, good to have you back with us. Um, hey, Carol. I caught up actually with Meg um, Whitman yesterday, and we were talking a little bit about this. This was at a, an event. And, you know, it's interesting to see the changes in big tech um, and what's going on. But she seemed to indicate that, you know, you're going to see these companies who are kind of aligning themselves, those that are in similar businesses, because it, it essentially kind of makes them a stronger player. But I'm curious how you see this. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me. Um, you know, when you look at 
this this sector, right? I mean, the printer segment is just fascinating because we know in the server segment and in the PC segment, uh, all the sort of you know second platform uh, hardware business, we've seen massive consolidation. And in in the printer segment, it's it's different, right? Still have probably ten players or so that that will be consolidated eventually. But when you when you have a PC, you kind of use that PC, use it for three, four, five years, and then you go on to the next one. But with a printer, you're buying into this ink. Uh, revenue stream, and you're buying into this legacy of of backward compatibility to that ink. So the businesses are a lot more complicated to put together because you have to think about the supply chain. You have to put a value on those customers, and then you know that spot, that 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 value of that ink, you know, you can't sort of consolidate it and make them use your ink because their ink chemically is different, and the packaging of that ink is different. So everything is kind of different. So this industry has been slower to consolidate, and the consolidation that we tend to see in printers is exactly this, where you see someone with say a high-end set of products for the office or the managed print services or the production print coming in and merging with somebody in the mainstream office. Um, segment, so it becomes very, very uh, complementary, and 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 I think that you know from a, on that logic alone, there's a lot of logic because that would mean that HP would get a lot more exposure to markets that they don't necessarily have exposure to today, um, and Xerox would be able to bring a lot of their services capabilities into what into Hewlett Packard's customers. All right, so Crawford, you know this industry very well. Do you like this deal? I mean, is this something that makes sense to you in the context of everything else that's going on? Because I got to tell you, there are a lot of people, younger than I am at least, who are like, Xerox is still around? Like, what? What are these companies? Like, I don't even understand what's happening here. Yeah. Who are they? Are we, are we talking about Wang? You know? Yeah, exactly. This is a, this is a, a clapback, as my kids would say. Uh, so does it make sense yeah. to you? Yeah, so there is a really uh, so so financially, this is a complicated deal. The only way I could see it would be for Xerox to raise a very very large amount of debt, right. which would mean that they'd have to take a lot of cost out of both sides of the of the company. Something Xerox has already been kind of down that path. They'd have to try to increase EBITDA in order to pay that debt down as fast as possible. These do tend to be cash flow rich businesses, but it would be a stretch. This would be a pretty big stretch. And I, and I, and, and, and I would say um, this, is, this is probably a deal that with a lower than 50% probability, I would think of going through this way because of that structure of the deal. Now, having said that, there is a logic to this deal. And also, mm-hmm. at first pass, this deal looks like you know, two sort of legacy tech companies getting together. But there's something happening in the office. There's this whole idea of the future of work, right. how companies want to buy equipment, how they want to um, uh, they, they want to bring millennials into the office environment. They, and millennials want to work in an entirely different way. And that means equipping them with new kinds of tools. Those tools need to be secure. And HP has a lot of security assets they could bring to Xerox products. Xerox, uh, HP also has a mode, which Xerox is already licensing, which is called device as a service, which is the idea that I subscribe to hardware. So I subscribe to PCs, I subscribe to uh, phones. HP actually uh, makes the iPhone available that way. Um, And I I can subscribe to high-end print products. So there's some assets that HP has that Xerox could avail themselves to, and they could generate subscription 
models for right. this business going forward in a business that they haven't been able to do that in the past. But I yeah. say, in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of an inside-out deal where I would have thought, just standing back, that HP would have been the acquirer right. of zero. Right. Well, that's exactly, exactly. Crawford Del Pratt, always good to get uh, your insight on things. President of IDC on the phone from Framingham, uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, in California, you got me running back again. All right, so Carol Master, you and I were in California earlier this week, first at Stanford, then in San Diego. It's a lot warmer than it is in New York today. It was a gorgeous place. You understand why people live and work there. And yet, and yet, uh, there's a lot about California that is not so attractive right now and a They're lot the to get into so much, right? the front lines for so much as mm-hmm. made to pray joins us she is a projects and investigations reporter for bloomberg joining us on the phone from los angeles her story america's biggest problems are intensified in california it is in the remarks section of the new issue of bloomberg business week magazine hi esme how are you good thanks how are you it's all right here Great to have you. Um, so tell us about uh, kind of California right now, because uh, it, it seems to be having a bit of a moment. Yeah, we've seen a lot of like California's burning type headlines from across the political spectrum. The New York Times, Fox News, even Trump has joined in uh, tweeting criticism of the governor, how he's handled the fires. So all of this is prompted by the past few weeks as California endures what is what we know as, know as peak wildfire season. Now, there are wildfires up and down the state, or there have been. Um, And then also, there are these blackouts, millions of people left in the dark by these voluntary blackouts by utility companies like PG&E, whose power lines have been blamed for sparking massive deadly fires in the past and obviously don't want to face that situation again. So it definitely feels like California is having a moment. Um, You know, this is something that California is used to. It's, It's a really powerful force in the country and the world, the most populous U.S. state, the fifth largest economy in the world. California is home to one in eight Americans. So what happens here really draws a lot of attention. You know, when you say that, like, I forget, like, I, you know, you're right, Jason, we just, you know, came back from California, north and south, and you, yep, it's a huge state, but you forget the influence and how big it is uh, in comparison to the rest of the country. But it's, and it's, it's the fires, it's the climate concerns, it's the dot-com bust, it's an electricity crisis, it's, you know, uh, so many different things, budget problems after the Great Recession, right? It's just um, everything that seems to happen is on a magnitude like no other. Yes, exactly. So right now, I mean, we're really seeing, you know, of course, the wildfires and the blackouts. But that's it magnifies really what arguably, you know, California faces, which are the two greatest potential existential threat, if you you will, faced by America and the world. And that's income inequality and climate change. So California has a severe housing crisis. It's led to a severe homeless crisis. Um, the economy is booming, but the median home price topped $600,000, so that's more than twice the national average. The poverty rate is the nation's worst when you factor into cost of living. And then again, this homeless problem. Again, California is home to 12% of the U.S. population and a quarter of the country's homeless. And most of those people don't live in shelters, like, say, in New York City. So you really, they're, they're very, very visible, and it makes the problem very real on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then, of course, you have climate change, which is making the fires worse. Uh, but going back to those headlines, California's burning. I mean, the truth, you know, as usual, is really somewhere in between. California faces significant challenges, but they've also dealt with a lot of seemingly insurmountable challenges before and pulled through. 
And so what's the early report card on Governor Newsom at, at this point and his ability uh, to take this on? I mean, the parade of California governors is one of the most interesting sort of set of political baseball cards, I feel like, that you could collect uh, over time. You know, Newsom, of course, former mayor of San Francisco, uh, I believe he understands a lot of these issues acutely that you're describing, especially uh, when it comes to housing and homelessness. How's he doing so far? Yeah, I mean, Newsom is facing a lot of pressure right now. He's definitely in the spotlight, given all these concerns. Um, but he's continuing to push that the, this, this theme that California has pushed for a long time, which is that, you know, uh, government can and should be proactive in addressing problems and can actually make a difference in people's lives. Obviously, that's not a theme that you see pushed by conservatives elsewhere um, and in California, like, but obviously California is a very liberal democratic state. So in the past few weeks, you've seen him really uh, tromp around the state, highlighting steps that the, the government has been taking to prepare for and preempt and respond to these environmental disasters. Um, the legislature and, 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 the, and Governor Newsom have been uh, very uh, active on, on addressing housing issues. Voters have responded by taxing themselves for homelessness. So you do see, you know, government intervention here for sure, trying to tackle a lot of these problems. So that's not to say that they're going to work. That's not to say that it makes everybody happy. But you do have a state that's facing big challenge again, challenges again and trying to address them uh, through government solutions. What I love, Esme, is in a, in a world where, and certainly here in the United States, we feel very frustrated often by our policymakers and their inability to maybe get you know, programs done. Here you have a state where the government is very active in it. And not only that, they pull in the private sector. You talk about you know, Facebook and Google throwing you know, a, a billion dollars into the housing crisis. Apple says it's putting up two and a half billion. So you, know, you don't see as much public-private sector collaboration, uh, I think, across the rest of the states. But you see it, I think, big time in California. Yeah, I mean, certainly one thing California has going for it is, again, it's a very Democratic-led state, so you have supermajorities in the legislature mm -hmm. um, and the governor's office, and, and I believe every statewide office is held by a Democrat. So you don't have the political, you know, the partisan bickering uh, that you have in Washington that really prevents things from getting done. Um, yeah, and going back to what Facebook and Google and Apple are doing, I mean, look, these are tech giants that have definitely exacerbated California's income inequality, have exacerbated the housing issues here, so that that can't be overlooked, but it's true that few other states have such private sector resources willing, you know, willing to deal with the problem and able to deal with the problem as opposed to your problems, as opposed to, you know, leaving the state, right. for example. So Esme, you know, one of the things that I feel like is a hallmark of your reporting is you're so good at like finding and talking to real people. You know, we spend so much time sort of talking about theory and, you know, politicians and whatnot. But what are people on the ground saying? You, you talk to some really interesting folks who it feels like are emblematic of what's going on there. Yeah, thank you. So um, I went down to the Easy Fire, uh, which was just about an hour um, northwest of Los Angeles. Uh, right, it was the one where it was it was right. It was threatening the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, so we we heard a lot about that on the news. So one person I met was this businessman named Kurt Michael. Um, I got I, I arrived at his business just as he was returning as well, or just shortly after he'd returned. So he has a mulch and a compost business, um, and it was the second time in in his 20 years there that wildfire had destroyed what he'd worked so hard to build. And I asked him, you know, is this going to make you leave? And he looked at me, you know, like I had 12 heads and said, right. well, no way. I'm a Californian. I mean, I'm proud to be here. I see a dirty canvas. I'm going to clean up and repaint. It's going to look nicer than it did before. So it was this incredible strain of optimism. 
um, and then, you know, showing the complexity of California and the world and everywhere. Uh, The next person I met was this woman, Mary Lou Shakuri. She had been, um, she had had to evacuate. It was actually the first time that her family had evacuated. Uh, It was very traumatic, but they also returned to their house to find that their house was totally fine. I mean, it smelled like smoke, but the property was otherwise unscathed. She had a completely different reaction to Kurt Michael. She said, you know, I don't feel safe here anymore. I'm more scared of fires than earthquakes, and I want to get the heck out of California. Right. Right. It's it's an amazing uh, it's amazing place. Uh, Really, really well told story and an important one, I think, for everybody to understand, because in many ways, as California goes, so goes the country just on sheer Mm -hmm. size and scope. Esme Dupre, great to catch up with you. Fantastic story. P&I reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close, the Friday close. Sandeep Bagat is with us, Chief Investment Officer of Whittier Trust, $13 billion in assets under management, joining us on the phone from Pasadena, California. Uh, nice to have you here. What a week. Chock full of stuff going on, and uh, we saw, you know, major equity averages hitting highs again. Sandeep, how do you read the market moves? Well, all of this is happening for a good reason, and the biggest development, if you had to summarize it, summarize it in one phrase, it would be that uncertainty has declined, and we have seen de-escalation of tensions along so many different dimensions. So let's quickly count them up. Number one, it looks like we've avoided a no-deal Brexit. Looks like we are on track in some configuration of a phase one trade deal with China. Details yet unknown. Uh, The Fed has communicated clearly. They're on the sidelines and will remain so, barring a big flare-up in inflation. And most importantly, Fears of recession have receded because growth is coming in above expectations, again, at many different levels. GDP growth was higher. Earnings growth is coming in better. And so it's no surprise that equity markets are up. And so, Sandeep, what does that mean for investors? Does that signal to them that maybe they should be rethinking some caution that was baked into a lot of strategies even just a month ago? Yeah, a lot of those recession fears have been misguided. So from about a year ago, even when we had that very sharp sell-off in December, we have always held on to the view that those fears were exaggerated, that the U.S. economy fundamentals were strong. Uh, And that sentiment or that evidence can be captured by just looking at the health of the service sector. The consumer is 70% of the U.S. economy. And on that front, job growth is solid. Consumer spending is healthy, incomes are going up, consumer confidence is high. And that has stood the U.S. economy in good stead over these last 12 months. And I think investors are now reconciling to the fact 
that growth is okay. And remember, there was a fear of contagion from outside the U.S. because the rest of the world was far more affected by the trade war that admittedly has been more protracted than many had believed. Uh, but even that seems to be de-escalating. And so I think people are now adjusting to the fact that oh my goodness, maybe there is no recession in 2020, maybe there isn't even one in 2021. The U.S. economy is chugging along rather nicely. And the other concern that people had on the topic of valuations, you know, a P.E. ratio of 17 seems high, but not so in the context of low inflation and low interest rates. So all of these concerns are slowly abating. And so what could make you worried all over again? Because everything you're talking about, candidly, Sandeep, is pretty fragile. I mean, Brexit, goodness gracious, we've seen so many turns uh, there. And obviously this election coming up on December 12th could uh, make this go a different way. Who knows? Uh, Tariffs and trade seem to move tweet to tweet and leak to leak. So what are you worried the most about that could disrupt what sounds like a pretty optimistic view of the market? Absolutely. So listen, this is not to suggest for a moment that one should become complacent. These were just reasons to be optimistic. And on any of those fronts, sure, a number of things could go wrong on Brexit, on trade, on growth. Uh, The U.S. growth dynamics, however, seem to be the most positive. Uh, Brexit could change on a dime, trade on a tweet. Uh, Not the U.S. economy, perhaps, uh, as quickly uh, as as some of those other dynamics might. Uh, And again, just people may find it hard to reconcile to this dichotomy that we have seen in global growth. All through this, the last 12, 18, 24 months of angst has still seen the U.S. economy fairly healthy, centered around the U.S. consumer. And I think we have enough data there to suggest that the consumer remains healthy, has been so, and shall remain so in the foreseeable future. So, Sandy, Some optimistic, not complacent. So what's your favorite investment idea right now? So given this backdrop, and let's recap, modest pickup in growth, low inflation, uh, you've got to pick stocks over bonds. The U.S. is still the best equity market in the globe. So U.S. over foreign stocks. And again, given this constructive view on the economy, if you had to go into sectors, I would be inclined to pursue the cyclical ones, technology, consumer discretionary financials, more so than defensive sectors like staples or utilities. All right, Sandeep Bagat, Chief Investment Officer over at Whittier Trust out in Pasadena, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.